Well, good morning again, and Merry Christmas. Good to see all of you here this morning. Well, this is now our fifth message in our Advent series. In week number one, we looked at the promised Savior from Genesis chapter 3. And then the second week, we looked at the promised Lamb from Genesis 22. And then in the third week, we looked at the promised Shepherd King from Micah chapter 5. And then last Sunday, we looked at the promised child from Isaiah chapter 9. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the promised comfort from Isaiah chapter 40. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, reading verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, Every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's go, Lord, in prayer at this time. Our Father and our God, Father, thank you again for your word that gives us light and truth to who you are and what you've done for us. And Father, we ask that you would be our teacher this morning, that we would sit at your feet and learn from you. Father, thank you again for Christmas and all that it represents to us as your children. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The thing that I would like for you to take home with you this morning is this. The glorious meaning of Christmas is that God and sinners are reconciled, which leads to comfort and joy. The glorious meaning of Christmas is that God and sinners are reconciled, which leads to comfort and joy. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. If I was to ask you this morning, what is your understanding of the gospel? What is your understanding of the Christian message? What is your understanding of the Christian life? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Has that been your understanding of the Christian message? Is that your understanding of the Christian life? It is a message of comfort. Martin Lloyd-Jones said there is nothing perhaps which shows more clearly 
the entirely wrong and false view which the average person has today of Christianity and the Christian life and the Christian message as a test like this. This text says the exact opposite of what the average person believes about Christianity and the Christian life. The average person thinks of Christianity as something negative, something boring, something dry, something miserable, no substance in it, brings about unhappiness. We think of Christianity as a collection of vetoes, restrictions, limitations, constraints, a list of thou shalt nots. That's the average guy's opinion or idea or thought about Christianity. It is something negative. It is something that hinders life. And yet it is the exact opposite. It's like the story of a man who was visiting a friend and his friend says, how's your diet going? And he said, it's going all right. I've lost about 10 pounds. And he said, well, tell me about your diet. Uh, what, what foods can you eat? What foods can you not eat? And he said, well, that's easy. He said, if it tastes delicious and you enjoy it, you can't have it. But if it tastes like tree bark, you can have all you want. And there's a lot of people that think about Christianity that way. The Christianity is like eating tree bark. And yet the opposite is told in scriptures. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That the Lord is good. I would argue that there are large numbers of people outside of the Christian church outside of church this morning simply because they have a false idea or false concept about Christianity. There are Christians all around, or there are many people who are not Christians, who are not in our churches this morning because they have this negative idea about Christianity. They've never read the Bible. They've never sat under biblical teaching. They've just assumed certain things. Maybe they grew up in a home that's not a Christian home and they heard an aunt or an uncle or a cousin say something like, you know, there's just nothing to Christianity. It's nothing but a bunch of myths and fables and just stories for old women and children. There's no substance to it. And they just picked that up and they've been carrying that with them for all these years. And they think that that's what Christianity is. All of us seem to be that we come into this world and we've got this preconceived idea. We think we know what Christianity is all about. And we can argue about religion and we can argue about Christianity. If somebody said to you uh, something about science, you might say, well, I don't know anything about science. I don't know anything about that. But when they ask you about Christianity or religion, it seems like everybody has an opinion about what Christianity is. We can give our ideas. And so oftentimes we've got a false concept of true Christianity. It is these people who sometimes, after coming under true biblical preaching and teaching, are the ones that are surprised and astonished and say, man, I never knew that. I never knew that was Christianity. I had it all wrong. Think about your own experience before you came to faith in Christ. Aren't you shocked once you finally hear the true gospel and come under good biblical teaching? Aren't you surprised at what the message really is? And so, so many people, I fear, are outside of the church today, outside of our churches because they simply do not understand 
the Christian gospel and what it really is and what it really says. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Is that your understanding of the Christian message? Is that your understanding of the Christian gospel? Is that your understanding of the Christian life? Is that your understanding of Christmas? How many of us think of the Christmas carol, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy. O tidings of comfort and joy. Is that your understanding of the Christian message? It is a message about comfort and joy. Good tidings. So that's point number one. What is the true message of Christianity? The angel said to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of Bethlehem has been born a savior who is Christ the Lord. Christianity is a message of joy and comfort. So that is point number one. Point number two, Isaiah 40 is all about prophecy. The whole book of Isaiah is a prophecy. And you have in Old Testament prophecy, you have a uh, immediate meaning and purpose and a future meaning and purpose. So here's how I think about biblical prophecy. You ever seen one of those pictures? It's, it's one picture, but there's two pictures in it. You ever seen one of those? You look at this picture and you say, oh, that's a picture of a horse, and I can see the horse and the beautiful mane. And then you look at it again, and you no, no, it's a, it's a man walking into a forest. It's one picture, but you see two in it. You've seen those? That's kind of like biblical prophecy. There's two pictures in one. And so that's what we have in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah's first purpose was an immediate purpose. He was given a message by God for the children of Israel. It was a message given to the prophet Isaiah to see beforehand what was going to happen to the nation of Israel. They were going to suffer. They were going to be conquered. They were going to be carried away into captivity to a place called Babylon. In the first part of Isaiah, he has been describing this captivity. But now, here in Isaiah 40, everything changes. So the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is darkness and gloom. It is the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel for their sin and disobedience and God's judgment upon the nations. But beginning in Isaiah 40, light begins to shine. Derek Thomas in his commentary said, when one turns from Isaiah 39 to Isaiah 40, it is though you step out of darkness into light. God is going to deliver his people from Babylon, captivity. He will bring them back to the land of Israel. And that's exactly what he did. This prophecy was fulfilled. That's the immediate meaning of this text. So Isaiah is speaking, first of all, to his contemporaries. And he's talking about they're going to go into captivity, but God is going to bring them out of captivity and set them free and bring them back to the land of Israel. But then there's another meaning meaning to Isaiah chapter 40. 
a future meaning and purpose. Isaiah 40 through 66 is a marvelous, wonderful foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I like to call Isaiah 40 through 66 the gospel according to Isaiah. And I would love to teach a Sunday school class sometimes on the gospel according to Isaiah because the imagery is so powerful throughout the book of Isaiah. And so this is a prophecy also about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 40. And we pick it up in verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight at the desert highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then turn over to Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, Thought I had it marked, I lost it. Matthew chapter three. In the days of John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by what? The prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So what we have here in Isaiah 40 through 66 is a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is good for us to see in the Old Testament these pictures, these images of the gospel. Sometimes we can get a hold of a picture much more than just um, abstract truth. And that's why Jesus so often spoke in parables. And so you have lots of pictures and imagery in the book of Isaiah. So it is a message of comfort. Isaiah 40 is a message of prophecy. Yes, for the nation of Israel, God is going to bring them into captivity and then he's going to bring them out of captivity. And then it is a message foreshadowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the message of comfort? What is the content of God's message of comfort? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. I see three things in God's message of comfort. Number one, her warfare is over. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned, and her sins have been paid for. Do you see that in the text? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Point number one, her warfare is ended. I looked this word up and looked at the Bible and various Bibles translation, and most Bible translate it warfare. King James, the war is ended. The ESV, the warfare is ended. The New American Standard, the war is ended. The NIV translates this way, 
that her hard service has been complete. There was a few Bible translations that translated your slavery or your servitude has been fulfilled. So think of the imagery here. The war is over, God says to the children of Israel. God is saying to them, there is a day coming when the hardship of Babylon captivity will end. When they went out into exile, there was no singing, there was no rejoicing. They hung their harps in the willow trees. But the Lord says, I'm going to bring you back. And it's going to be a time when I bring you back. It's going to be a time of great singing and rejoicing. This is the picture of the exodus from Babylon. It is a picture also of the exodus from Egypt. And what do they represent? They represent our salvation, how God is delivering us and bringing us out of captivity. We were in captivity to sin and under bondage of sin, and God has set us free. So it is a biblical picture, yes, that God is going to deliver the children of Israel from Babylon. But what does it mean for us? The war is over. Think of the imagery there. My dad was born in 1939. He was five years old when World War II ended. He said, I remember the joy and the celebration and people honking their horns, celebrating that the war is over. What does that mean for us as Christians? The war is ended. The man or the woman that is not a Christian is a woman or a man who is at war with God. He is fighting God. He has no peace with God. He feels that God is against him, that God is opposed to him. It is a battle. It is a conflict. It is a struggle. It is a fight. That is the picture of a man or a woman who is not a Christian. They are at war with God. You remember the words of St. Augustine? Lord, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. A lot of people miss that first part. Augustine was saying, Lord, you made us, you designed us for one purpose, one reason, and that is to have fellowship with you and to enjoy you. And our hearts are restless. They are at war until they rest in you. The non-Christian is at war with God. Some of the most miserable men in the world today are probably millionaires. They can buy their wives. They can buy their houses. But they can't buy peace. They can't buy joy. They can buy their drinks and their automobiles and their beautiful mansions. But they cannot buy peace and comfort. All of us know something about this warfare. Are you in a state of peace this morning? Is there any ripple on your soul? Do you find it an easy thing to walk the narrow path? Or do you find you still battle lust and envy and jealousy and passions? We're at war. What if I was to ask you about your relationships? What is the state of affairs between you and others, between you and your parents, between you and your husband, between you and your wife, 
between you and your children, between you and your co-workers. Life without God is a life of conflict and fighting and bickering. It's the life of man under the judgment of God. Since the fall of mankind, there's been no peace with God for the ungodly. God's words say the way of the sinner is hard. What's the cause of this warfare? Two words mentioned in our text, sin and iniquity. We have turned our backs on God. We have rebelled against him. We have chosen to go our own way. And this is the reason we are at war. We turn our back upon our creator and choose to go our own way and try to live life without God. And we find ourselves at war. And here in Isaiah, he is telling us God has done something to bring about peace. And the war is over. The war is ended. What else is the content of this message? Tell her that her iniquity is pardoned. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. What is this message of comfort? Your iniquity is pardoned. Can you think of anything more wonderful or greater than the doctrine of forgiveness? That God forgives us of our sin. David writes in Psalm 20 or Psalm 32, blessed is the man. Happy is the man. Comfortable is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. God says, I will blot out your sins. I'm old enough to remember in typing class that when you would type and make an error, you had this little bottle called whiteout. And you would use that whiteout to blot out your mistake. God says, I will blot out your sin. Isaiah 44, 22. I have blotted out your transgression like a cloud, your sins like mist. They're going to just all disappear. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Or the words of Horatio Spafford, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. For the song, though my sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. It's a message of pardon and forgiveness, this message of comfort. And third is a message that her sins have been paid in full. 
One of the messages from Genesis to Revelation is that sin must be atoned for. Sin must be paid for. God cannot be just and righteous and just sweep all of our sins under the rug and pretend like they never happened. No, he is holy and righteous and sin must be paid for. And this is what Christmas is all about. 2,000 years ago, God stepped into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. And why did he come? Why was Christmas necessary? Why was it necessary that the Son of God be born into this world? He came for two reasons. One, to live a perfect, holy, and righteous life. And he came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Isaiah 53, 6. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Or do you remember that song about 20, 30 years ago? Be glad. In these days of confused situations, in this night of restless remorse, when the heart and the soul of a nation lay wounded and cold as a corpse, from the grave of the innocent Adam comes a song bringing joy to the sad. Oh, your cry has been heard and the ransom has been paid up in full. Be ye glad. Oh, be ye glad, be ye glad. All the debts that you've ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be ye glad, be ye glad. The glorious meaning of Christmas is that God and sinners are reconciled, which leads to comfort and joy. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christmas is all about how God reconciles sinful people to himself. I think it was James Kennedy who gave this illustration. He said, think of two books. Here's a book of your life. And it's a book about this thick, 60 some years, maybe 80. It's a book of your life. And inside that book, every time you sin, they put a mark in it. Every time you sin, a mark, a mark, a mark. How many marks are in your book and in my book? My book is full of marks. Every single page. And then there's another book, the book of Jesus and his life. How many marks are in his book? No, not one. Not one mark, not one blemish. He is the spotless lamb of God. And the gospel is all about how God takes all of our sins, puts it on Christ, and he takes the righteousness of Christ and he places it upon us. That's the gospel of reconciliation. You remember Martin Luther wrestling with God, at war with God for years. 
He was asked to study and to lecture on the book of Romans. And the thing that Martin Luther struggled with, he was a lawyer, he had a legal mind. He really struggled with the righteousness of God. It was that wall, it was that barrier. And he could not understand this righteousness of God that Paul talks about in Romans. And as he was studying the work of Augustine, it appeared to him, God revealed it to him, that the righteousness that Paul is talking about is not the righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that we receive, that is given to us by faith. And when Martin Luther saw that, he said, the heavens were opened and I marched through. That's the doctrine of justification by faith. Paul says in Romans 5, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's the message of comfort. So the message I want you to go home with is the message of Christmas is that God and sinners are reconciled. And that brings about comfort and joy and peace. Let's pray this time. Father, thank you again for Christmas and the meaning of Christmas and why Jesus came into this world. He came to die on a cross. He came to live a holy and righteous life that we would be declared righteous in your presence by faith in Christ and Christ alone. And Father, we thank you for your wonderful and glorious gospel. And Lord, I pray if there's somebody here this morning who has never really understood the gospel, that today would be the day that they would see that this message is a message of great comfort and joy. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.